Welcome to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Grants, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we do have some very Canucks specific discussions to get into throughout the course of the show, but I mean, we got to start. We got to start to answer with the news around the NHL last night, today, uh, and with some new developments in the story just in the last half hour or so. The Arizona Coyotes, their proposed arena entertainment district, district decisively rejected uh, by voters in Tempe, Arizona. It felt like that was the end, or at least the beginning of the end for the Arizona Coyotes, and that as early as next year, they would be playing somewhere else, not in Mullet Arena. Uh, but reports to the contrary, and as I said just in the last half hour, Elliot Friedman confirming a report from Greg Wyshynski uh, that they will be in Arizona at least for next season. And Craig Morgan, who of course is a longtime Arizona Coyotes reporter, saying, uh, slow the talk of relocation, period. I am now hearing that there is still a path forward for the Coyotes in Arizona. So lots going on here, starting with the vote last night and through to the new developments this morning. The Coyotes saga is never going to end. It certainly this feels like, that way right now. Yeah, it's like if you're waiting on George R. R. Martin to publish <laughs> book six in the Game of Thrones series. You know, Wyshynski's reporting, for what it's worth, was not as definitive as the confirmations that Friedman and Craig Morgan have mm -hmm. going out there. Uh, the email that he quotes from Bill Daly in which D Daly says to ESPN, I don't envision a scenario in which the Coyotes are not playing in Mullet Arena next season. And he has an additional source um, saying the Coyotes will play another year at Mullet Arena. That's the current thinking, unless something unexpected happens this offseason. Yeah. Comes to this Coyotes saga. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like and, In general, but especially with the Coyotes, expect the unexpected. And the only constant is that the NHL is so pot committed to making this work that they're not going to fold. Like, they have to lose. You know, I, I don't see the NHL folding at any point. They, uh, they can't afford to. It just, they're standing at the table. It just seems like this was the loss, right? Like, the NHL and Arizona and the Coyotes organization have spent so long telling us that as soon as they get to Tempe, everything will be great. That's where all our fans are. Oh, they can't make it to Glendale. But look, we'll be a model franchise as soon as we're in this part of Phoenix. And then you get rocked. You decisively lose. It's not even close. Oh, high, vo high voter turnout is going to be good for us. You get soundly rejected by this location that's supposedly chock full of Coyotes fans. Right, and we've heard over and over again what an incredible deal this would be, and oh, it's gonna it's gonna be so great for the Coyotes. There's no other option. Like that's the well, loss. That's what, what else are we waiting for? But that's for? what we've heard. But that's what we've heard, because in Tempe, the conversation was very different. Right, the mm -hmm. um, sort of no side to the ballot initiatives 301, 302, 303 uh, outspent 
the Coyotes side by like an eight to one ratio in terms of the PACs, right? The political action committees that got involved. And so on the radio anyway, you know, this was extremely successfully framed to voters mm -hmm. whose demographics skewed older as effectively another bailout for a billionaire. And that played and played in a major way, you know, lost in all this discussion about like relocation, which now the NHL is tamping the brakes on, right? Yeah. Which I think is really concerning because it makes me wonder if they didn't really have a plan B, right? But lost in this is, you know, you can talk about Houston or Salt Lake City or Milwaukee or the or Quebec City or the mm -hmm. relative merits of X other market. But you know what would be an interesting market to try? Phoenix. Yeah. Like, what's the problem with the Coyotes? They got evicted from Glendale, which wasn't financially feasible. It is for the NFL. It wasn't for the NHL. A downtown arena might be. And it's just like, that would be the market I'd love to see. For Coyotes fans, for the league. You know, you, you think about the classic problem franchises, right? And we've got this Ottawa Senators sale um, might happen next week. Or at least the winning bid might be... Mm -hmm the winning bidder might be identified next week, according to the latest reports. Like, what's their biggest problem? Where, the rink, where the rink is. Yep. Yeah, well, and ownership. The Florida Panthers, they have super stable ownership. Super competitive ownership, too. What's their issue? The suburbs. The Coyotes, whatever suburb they land in, the suburban barns don't work. They don't. They don't make sense. People don't go to games as families and as, like, the only thing you do in an evening anymore. You know, a, a game is part of, like, a tableau sort of offering <laughs> within the context of, uh, of an urban area. It's like, whether you live in the city or you come to the city, you know, you have a full night. You meet your friends mm -hmm. for drinks before. You go to the game. And then you have plans afterwards or dinner. You know, it fits in as part of a larger thing. You need a, a dense urban environment to support 18,000 fans at a hockey game the way that you really require for an NHL team to thrive. And, and that's especially true for younger generations, right? Like for people 10 years younger than me, they don't even sit in the seat for the whole game. Like, they want to explore the arena. You, you need activations. You need, you know, Instagram-worthy things to take photos with. Like, you need to rethink the arena experience, and teams are doing this actively. But the fundamental one is you need a barn downtown. Like, I feel really sick for Coyotes fans. I, you might not know this about me, but I'm a big believer and supporter in Sunbelt hockey. Sure. Like, in the conversation about this conference final where you've got Vegas, Carolina, Florida, and Dallas, you know, for me, that's a huge win because the future of hockey doesn't necessarily look, you know, 50% Canadian. <laughs> like, it doesn't necessarily look the way it has. The, the next generation of players don't necessarily all have, um, you know, vaguely Ukrainian or Polish last names, <laughs> and they're all from the prairies. 
um, you know, and I make that joke as someone with one myself, like yeah. the the classic Canadian homesteader thing, you know, that that's changing and that's good. And we've already seen that impact, um, you know, in terms of Austin Matthews, in terms of Shane Gostas Bear, uh, in terms of the California hockey boom. And this is good. Like, it's good for hockey that you've got an elite goaltender from San Diego crushing it in a Canadian market. Like, that's fantastic. That's fun. And, and I think it's good to support a bigger horizon for hockey in like the untapped veins of North American markets that haven't historically embraced the sport, but absolutely can if it's done right, managed right, sold right, and the teams succeed. I mean, look no further than the spectacle of playoff hockey being played off Broadway in Nashville well, with catfish being tossed onto the ice or look or a, Tampa Bay a few hours, with the lightning flags everywhere. A few hours drive north to Vegas. You talk about a non-traditional hockey market and look how like with good ownership and, and the right buildup, how they've been able to do it and make it work. There, uh, right. And look at their HL team in Henderson. Yeah. And honestly, look at the HL team in Tucson. I mean, I'm I, I'm in the Coachella Valley right now, and the Firebirds are in the playoffs, and you see like flags and gear everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. It's it's a ma- it's a smash success, and that's great. Like it's thirty degrees at six a.m. here, and people are stoked about Calder Cup playoff hockey. Yeah, you gotta love it. For me, the fr- like yeah. I, I just yeah the the frustration with the Coyotes is less about phoenix than it is just about the 27 years of mismanagement and kind of farce that has led us to this point now i will say like we've all heard the reasons the kind of abstract reasons why the nhl wants to make it work in phoenix right the size of the population the media market all of that i get that i think now that the earth has kind of been salted like, if this was – if you were going to put an expansion team, right, you had no history of failure with the Coyotes, and you were going to put an NHL expansion team with really good ownership in Arizona, in Phoenix, I could see that working. I could see that making a lot of sense. I don't know if the Coyotes, given all the history and all the baggage they have, and again, the history of mismanagement and failure and ridiculousness, I don't know if they can work in Phoenix at this point. And the other thing I would say is I'm not sure Phoenix is a great sports market – but there's a lot of teams there, but I'm not sure, like, if you're – because you're behind the NFL, you're behind the NBA, you're behind Major League Baseball, you're behind University of Arizona. Like, can you be fifth on the pecking order and not have great ownership and have 27 years of history of kind of a joke franchise and succeed there? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. And be in the no, suburbs. No, I, I mean, you're right. That's, that's the thing a, for it's me. It's a difficult task ahead, not, not to mention that it starts with needing to find – a site, you know, whether it's Mesa or whether it's, um, you know, uh, with uh, other tribal bands down there mm-hmm. or what have you. I mean, it's going to be a l- big lift to simply identify where this goes next. I mean, pipe dreams of Matt Ishbia getting involved as if Matt Ishbia is like- former D1 yeah. shooting guard playing for Michigan State under Tom Izzo didn't specifically pursue a passion project in buying an NBA team and would and would suddenly have interest in a sport he doesn't care about. Yeah, in, I in mean, a, a struggling franchise that in a sport he doesn't care about, right? Like, hey, do us a solid. Like, what? Why would I do that? I, I, yeah. don't, I don't see that necessarily making a lot of sense, even though people talk about that as, like, the only last-ditch effort to possibly keep them uh, in Arizona. So- but if you're... 
Go ahead. If you're talking about a purgatory year at Mullet Arena while the team awaits a sale, that's a worst case scenario. Like, I think that's are you gonna even going to be able to sell? I think that's going to be forty five hundred tickets. A joke, like an absolute joke. Look, look what's and if we want to talk about like optics and everything, the 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 NHL has something great going on with the Ottawa sale. A zombie year in Arizona where everyone knows the team is moving and you're playing in that joke of a rink, that is a terrible, terrible look. Like, I understand the logistics of getting them going for next year in Utah or Houston or whatever is going to be difficult, and I want to talk a little bit more about what some of the roadblocks might be. I understand that might be difficult, but at a certain point, you have to rip the Band-Aid off because playing out an 82-game season in a market that knows you're on the way out in a college rank with a team that's not trying to be competitive and can't afford to spend money, that is a daily story about how your league looks ridiculous. Look what's happening with the Oakland A's right now, right? They're playing yep. to like 2,000 people a, a game. Nobody cares. They're awful. Fans are bringing signs, ripping the owner to the game. It's a terrible look for Major League Baseball. That should be the priority to avoid for the NHL. It doesn't seem like they're going to be able to, at least not right now. Well, I mean, we'll see. I'm. I think take everything fast developing out of this with a grain of salt. But the players should be outraged because this is deeply unfair to Coyotes players. Oh. But it's also a massive um, suck on revenue, particularly if you're dealing with a nightmare scenario year of a zombie season at Mullet Arena. Um, and and I can't get over like how was the league? Like, did you see Alan Walsh? pointing out that the league had timed a sports business yes. journal career achievement award with the anticipated victory yes. of the Tempe vote. It's like, how was anyone confident when you're outspent eight to one? No, I mean, I, I know I'm not exactly a U.S. political expert, but I've dealt with some of this municipal mm -hmm. voting stuff, not not the, the, the direct democracy level, but like council votes on land appropriations and on and on. Uh, occurred and I worked closely with lobbyists during my time with the Panthers in, in securing um, the new practice facility uh, site at the old war memorial in Fort Lauderdale, which, by the way, that facility is going to be sick. And, like, you know how it's going to go down. You you don't take chances with it, um, in part because you spend to be expertly advised – Right. And you are careful not to take black eyes uh, like this. A and I'm just stunned. Like, I'm st when I read Saravalli's report that they'd been outspent yep. eight to one. Like, how do you expect to win? You, you, you know what? The other, the That's other, not tidbit, serious. The other tidbit from Saravalli, which really sealed it for me, was that. Uh, the labor unions in the state, the powerful labor unions were on the no side because they were concerned the construction jobs weren't going to be union jobs. And when you start to th talk about like, and I'm going to try to say this all in as value neutral terms as possible, we don't need to get into the politics of it. But when you start with the kind of inherent libertarian anti-spending streak in Arizona politics, which has a long, rich history, then you add that the labor unions are on the other side, too. It's like, well, that's a really bad spot to be starting from. That is a really, really bad spot to be starting from. And that's how it played out last night in the end. Not to mention that, you know, say what you want about labor unions. They're hard to out-organize. Yes, yes, exactly. If they're, throwing, so, if they're throwing their weight against your proposal, that's very, very bad news uh, for your proposal. Climb. Now, I, I just, I'm stunned by how this has gone down. And, and more... 
the clear ex the clear expectation bordering on arrogance that this vote would go a certain way mm-hmm. um the confidence followed by just such a devastating and massive rejection of hockey by the tempe community i mean there should be some very difficult questions being asked both internally for the coyotes but certainly by the nhl itself like how did you have eggs in this particular basket and when your opponent's basket cost eight times more all of your eggs like how much hype how much hype and confidence have they tried to project into this, right? Like so much smoke being blown about what a great well, project and how this would save the Coyotes. And enough that there doesn't seem to have been a plan B. Like in, in Atlanta, when it, when the Atlanta thing went down, it was like two weeks later they had True North lined yep. up. Yep. I mean, it was ready to go. Now, I think this um, is a, a – the, the dynamics of relocation are really fascinating here because on the one hand, okay, we have Ottawa who's about to sell for what? A billion dollars, right, with all mm-hmm. these like – high-profile celebrities desperately trying to get in and four or five groups seeking to outbid each other. You look at the recent expansion success of uh, Vegas and of Seattle and the expansion fees paid. The NA- like An NHL team right now, I would compare it to like a property, a plot of land in Vancouver, a residential plot of land in Vancouver. It's very valuable. Lots of people want to buy it. The Coyotes, though, are like the dilapidated 60-year-old almost falling down house on that property that's actually driving the value of the whole thing down right like they're like you would rather have just the empty plot of land than have to pay the fees to you know demolish down the the house that you're going to tear down anyways and i think if i when you look at the dynamics of relocating for next year if you are you know the owner in utah the owner in houston how enticing is it to kind of catch this hot potato of a team devoid of talent that hasn't been trying to be good for years now, start playing in, what, six months, less than that, five months, with no opportunity to market, to build your season's ticket base, anything like that. How enticing is that versus, well, maybe they're going to expand again in a couple years and I can get the Vegas deal. I can get the Seattle deal. I can start from scratch. I can have two to three years of run up to build the fan base in my town. If I was one of, if I was a potential NHL owner, Hey, I might be really interested in joining the club, but I'd rather do it with my own team from scratch. I'm not sure the Arizona coyotes are enticing me to get it done that much. Oh, I would love to take over the coyotes. If I was a competitive NHL owner, I I mean, as much as the expansion process and the ability to start from scratch contractually is a huge win, like other than the fact that I've got all these, you know, um, zombie contracts, right? Voracek and <laughs> Shea Weber yep. and Brian Little. I mean, I've got more draft capital than God over the next three years. Like the Coyotes have. Uh, seven draft picks in the first three rounds this upcoming draft, okay? Uh, eight in 2024 and another seven in 2025. Like, at the end of the day, I would rather have that than the right to select one third liner, second pair defenseman, or backup goaltender from all 32 NHL teams. No matter how much um, people misunderstand the role of the expansion rules in Vegas and Seattle's rise, right? It's part of the story, but it ain't the story. And I mean, that draft capital is, is better. And the Coyotes have a ton of cap space. If they ever like 
got an owner who was like, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's spend to the cap. I mean, they would be able to call their shot, do whatever they want. Um, you know, you're talking about a team that has 28 million committed for the 2024 uh, 25 campaign, right? So that's a projected 59 million in space. I mean, that's ludicrous. Like, that's perfect flexibility. It's It's not even significantly different from what a team going through the expansion process. I mean, the Coyotes, because they've run so lean, I think are actually a really fascinating and attractive team to take over, uh, even if you are inheriting a team that's probably less well-positioned to make like a splash as a playoff team in, in year, year one, one or two in a new market yeah. than you would with the expansion draft. You have a way clearer route to grafting elite talent onto that roster plus you might already have one of those guys in dylan cooley or sorry i logan got the cooley. first name wrong again didn't i logan yeah. cooley um and that's an interesting one too i saw andy strickland note that um you know he wonders if cooley's or the uncertainty in the desert might impact cooley's decision on when to withdraw from the university of minnesota and that is a big red flashing light for the Coyotes too, uh, particularly given the gravity of the Blake Wheeler experience. So, hey, congratulations to the Pittsburgh Penguins, Boston Bruins, New York Rangers on the potential of getting a uh, <laughs> a free top end guy if this continues to go sideways for a couple years. Yeah, it's uh, it is an absolute mess, as you said. We're going to hear a lot of things come out in in the next few days here. Take it all with a grain of salt. We're, we'll see where it goes. But, yeah, the big thing for me is if they're in if they're in Arizona next year, it's going to be it's going to seem absolutely ridiculous. It is going to be another yet another black mark on the NHL's record uh, when it comes to the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, we'll continue uh, a little more insight into the vote last night, the new developments today. What's up next with our guy Sean Gentilly? We'll talk some Stanley Cup playoffs with him as well from the Athletic. He joins us next on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintex studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Sean Gentilly of The Athletic going to join us here in just a minute. Uh, we will also, by the way, stay tuned for this, be giving away another pair of 50-cent tickets uh, at some point later in the show. So stay tuned uh, for your chance to win tickets to 50-cent, and I believe Busta Rhymes uh, later in the fall here in Vancouver. Uh, lots coming up as well to, about the Canucks. Uh, Dranzer, you have a good piece exploring some of the uh, other options of, that exist to them or just the totality of options really that exist for the Canucks to uh, potentially clear some cap space this summer. So we can chat a little bit about uh, that as well. Um, lots of reaction obviously coming in uh, to the Dunbar Lover text line about the Arizona Coyotes situation. And we will continue that conversation now with uh, our friend, Sean Gentilly of The Athletic. Uh, Sean, I mean, how much are you enjoying another round of Arizona Coyotes drama? <laughs> I think, 
I was doing the math last night. Like this is I'm 37 years old. Yep. All this stuff started when I was straight out of college. This is like 15 years of like I don't know my career or my professional life without insane drama, just exhausting nonsense going on with the Arizona Coyotes. Transfer. This happened like we were we were talking about this when I was editing your copy at Sporting News like ten <laughs> or twelve years ago or whatever that was. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, two thousand what eleven, two thousand twelve. Uh, we're talking about more than a decade for sure. Uh, but uh, but it's been going on. Do you remember those kooky city council meetings? And they happened like late <laughs> yeah. at night on the East Coast. Those were f- so weird. Do you did you guys? Did you guys watch Parks and Rec? Yeah. When it was on NBC, they would always have like bits from the from the uh, Pawnee, Indiana, like city council meetings where they would open it up to the citizens and, and all that. And they were always there, this like kooky, crazy cast of goofballs who would come and talk to these people. Anytime that happened when that show was running, I was like, oh, that's just, that's just Glendale City Council. <laughs> like, that's all we're doing. We're just watching Coyotes Arena debates, except it's in a sitcom form. Oh man. So I mean it's it's fitting given all of that that after we all kind of uh started to, you know, write the obituary for the Coyotes in Phoenix last night in Arizona last night that you know now we start to hear well they're going to be there next year potentially and hey maybe they won't even relocate at all. I mean is that just kind of what we should have expected really given how committed Gary Bettman has been to the whole situation? Yeah, definitely. And also just the math that's involved here like it's tough to i know we saw it in atlanta so you can't you can never say never but it's tough to pick up an nhl team and move it and be ready in six months or wherever five months wherever we are at on the calendar so yeah i'm not surprised that we're not hearing about them moving to salt lake city in in six weeks or, or anything like this is this is a process sales can take time moves can take time and i think ultimately you know, the league, whatever happens here, will be better for it. Because if that's what happens and if they can't figure something out in Phoenix with the Suns owner at that at that arena, because that's like the next, you know, that feels like the next offshoot that we're going to be talking about here as far as them staying in Arizona concern, is concerned. If that doesn't work out and they need to move and we're talking about them going to Salt Lake City or Houston or Atlanta or whatever else, they need some runway. So an extra year at Arizona State, uh, even though, you know, that lost its charm pretty quickly, I think it's going to be beneficial because it's going to let the league, you know, it's going to give the league some time. It's going to give uh, interested ownership groups and arena groups in, in those cities some time. I, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, and it's certainly not something that surprised me uh, whenever we heard about it this afternoon. What do you think the NHLPA reaction would be, though, to another season, <laughs> this one with a zombie team spent at Mullet Arena. I mean, it's one thing to be there as a stopgap with a plan, but as a prelude to a, an inevitable sale and or relocation, uh, that kind of hits different, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the way to spin it, I mean, because, like, we, look, we all know the PA hates this, right? They hated the situation a week ago. They're going to hate it tomorrow. Like, there's no, because there's no reason for them not to. There's no way to spin this positively. It sucks. It cuts. It, it's a bad situation to play in. It cuts back on on revenue. Like there's there's any number of reasons for for players, you know, to wish that any something anything was different here. 
I think there's a way to spin it, though, where you can say, all right, this is it. This is the last season, 23-24. We're going to do one more instead of two more after that, which was the original plan, if they were to we're gone. We're going to go play in Salt Lake City. We're going to go play in Houston. We're going to start the process, whatever, whatever it might be. I think, you know, the idea of doing one more season there, if there's some kind of end end game that it, that we've, that it truly does. I know we're, we're, I, we're talking about 15 years in the making here, but it does seem like, you know, we're going to know one, one way or another soon. And if, and if the, if the give back there is one more year at Arizona state, you know, I don't think that's the worst scenario for the PA. Like, is that is that any worse than them playing for two more years there or three more years there, and then moving into an moving into an arena that may or may not work in Arizona in the first place? I, I I don't think I hate the idea of doing one more year there and then moving to Houston or Salt Lake City or whatever. I think a year in limbo for Coyotes players would be something that annoys the PA considerably. Oh, I think it should. Absolutely. It's going to annoy the PA and it's going to annoy the players. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that you saw Logan Cooley, who's number three overall pick last year. They're certainly their top prospect, one of the best players in, in the NCAA, has nothing else to prove for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, right? What's he, what's he do? Instead of, instead of joining the organization on a pro level, he's headed back to play another season of, of NCAA hockey. Heard about that last week. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think we're going to see more of that from players at the NHL level for sure, if this is indeed how it's going to go down, players are not happy. They shouldn't be, but also there's worse. Like what? <laughs> playing in Mullet Arena for two or three more years is is worse than playing there for one more, right? Like it's just it, it's it's the way. It, there's no there's no great situation there. The PA is going to be mad no matter what, and they should be. But at this point, it's just trying to make the best of a bad situation, which they're familiar with down there. Sean, do you like we're hearing now? Oh, maybe they won't even relocate at all. I mean, the only kind of tangible last ditch Hail Mary option I've heard about is you go talk to Matt Ishbia and the Suns and see if they're interested in anything. I don't know, but that seems like pretty far fetched to me. But who knows? Is there anything beyond that or is that it? Is that truly like the final option uh, possible here before we really start talking about relocating? Oh, I mean, in terms of playing in in the Phoenix area, like, yeah. I don't I don't know what else could be done. But also, I was surprised to see that the Tempe Arena popped up, you know, a couple years ago. So it's easy to say, like we've said it before. Like my God, we're talking about 15 years running with this. We're like, okay, this seems like it has to be it. This seems like it has to be it. This is the last. This is the last option. This is the last option. So I'm hesitant to say that for certain. But man, outside of figuring something out with Phoenix. Who, by the way, the Coyotes' current ownership is suing over some drama related to the arena campaign. They're suing the city, and the city owns Footprint Arena. That's a whole other hurdle. You have to, <laughs> you know, Matt. Matt Shibia wants to needs to want to own the team, which is another one. And then there's the fact that the, that the arena has been renovated in the past and can't make ice, as far as as far as I understand right now. So there's all sorts of hurdles there. And then if you want to go into other you know, other towns or other areas where they could build or build an arena, like that's a whole other can of worms. So I'm I'm hesitant to say that there's no other options because we've said it before, but it really does kind of seem that way. It's really telling too when you list off all the things wrong with the idea of playing where the sun in the sun's building and like somehow yeah, like, and somehow that's that, and that's the best <laughs> option remaining. <laughs> it's like, oh man. Yeah. Like other than that, other than that it's great. Yeah. Uh, other than that it sounds city, awesome. 
<laughs> being sued by the city, the guy the, the guy might not actually want to buy him, and they can't make ice in that arena. Other than that, it's a great place for a hockey team. <laughs> yeah, sounds perfect. I don't know why they didn't think of it before. So, okay, and that kind of illustrates, like, I think the best word, the word that keeps coming up for me when I think about this whole thing is it's a farce, right? It is, like, farcical mm-hmm. in nature. And I understand that Gary Bettman is very personally committed to this, has been for a long time. I also understand that Gary Bettman has a huge amount of sway. Like, technically, he works for the owners, but he has a huge amount of sway and influence over the owners. But there has to come a time where the rest of the ownership around the NHL looks at this and recognizes that it's a farce and starts to lean on Gary Bettman a little bit, right? Well, I mean, there's benefits for the owners of this, too. You have the redheaded stepchild franchise that, you know, maybe helps keep the cap down a little bit, gives you a place to stash your mistakes. Like, there's there's something to be said for having a dumping ground like like uh, like they've run in Arizona the last few years, right? There's there's benefits to the owners for, for having them around. Keep Keep revenue low, have somewhere to stash bad contracts. I don't know. It's not without its benefits. But yeah, at some point, at some point, enough's going to be enough, right? Because you have a team that, even if things went perfectly in Mullet Arena, right, you're going to have, uh, however many, three years, four years of five thousand cap crowds. Like even if you sell out every game and maximize every dollar there, that's still a quarter of a of an actual sold out real life NHL arena, which affects revenues in and of itself, right? So again, it goes back to what we've talked about you know, a couple times here is like, yeah, it seems, it seems insane. It seems like owners should be furious. It seems like they should be completely done with the concept here, but it seemed like that forever. It seemed like that 10 years ago. Right. So I, I don't even know. anymore, man. like I'm truly hesitant on pulling the trigger and saying like, all right, this has to be it because I've been there before. Sean, what, what do you make? Of the seriousness with which, well, excuse me, the seriousness with which this was pursued, because the way that that Tempe Yes side was outspent, and the fact that there's no true North waiting in the background, mm-hmm. to me speaks, or at least implies, like a pretty galling lack of preparation and/or arrogance by both the Coyotes and the NHL on this front? I think so. I think so. But, like, I'm trying not to slag the Coyotes all that much, right? Because I feel bad for the yeah. fan base. There are people that care about that team that are about to, that are on the verge of losing it. In either way, have just had to put up with just a ridiculous, embarrassing amount of nonsense over the last decade or decade and a half, right? So I don't want to slag it entirely. But, like... We haven't seen good judgment from this organization in the past. Like they've they've had like they got evicted from from Gila River Arena for not paying their rent. You know, there's all sorts of problems organizationally that speak to uh, a, a lack of yeah, like a, a, an issue. <laughs> like they have there's not a lot of they have, they've made poor decisions in the past, right? And it feels like in some spots this is just a logical kind of offshoot of that this is the extension of the lack of good judgment that we've seen from them from that group and really in other ownership group and really from anybody associated with hockey in that market for the last however many years so 
you know, I'm not all that surprised by it. I'm not all that surprised that, that, that they uh, that they got outspend the way that they did, and they didn't quite realize the way the wind was blowing until it was too late. I think that's about what we've come to expect. <laughs> it's it's just such a sigh-worthy subject matter yeah, at, at this point. With... Um, If you, if I asked you to look in your crystal ball, okay, mm-hmm. how would you handicap? And you can use American odds if that's what you're most familiar with. <laughs> how would you how would you handicap the probability that we have you on again in twelve months to oh. discuss stasis with the Coyotes? <laughs> like, oh, they've got a you know a, a plebiscite in Mesa to determine the fate of the franchise versus a relocation. Uh, and, and that's projecting just a year out. I'm saying the odds are, God, I'm such a sucker, dude. Like it's, this feels like it's (laughs) over. I want to, I want to say that it's like 50 to one that we're having the same conversation in a year, right. On, On some level, but I, I just don't, I don't know anymore. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what what end is up and what end is down because it's true. It's like it's Twilight Zone stuff. Like I honestly can't. Like last night, I was like, I cannot believe that I am that I am still talking about this. Like after 15 years of city council meetings and Jerry Moyes and Jerry Reinsdorf and Matthew Hulsizer, all these like names, like blast from the past names that have been away. To this disaster. Oh my God, bear away. 15 years right and it's just like one parade of goofs after another and we're still talking about it so i want to say that like i want to say that it's 50 to 1 that we're that we're doing it again but i feel like that might just be wishful thinking just one more for me because you know we pretty quickly pivoted from a discussion of like and i don't mean you, me and or jamie mm-hmm. uh and certainly not you but like Hockey Twitter, anyway, in its infinite lack of wisdom, has in record time pivoted from the is having three Sunbelt teams in the conference final good for the game conversation (laughs) to (laughs) Salt Lake City or Houston. What's a better place for the uh, Arizona Coyotes? How does what's transpired here, do you think, impact the conversation that we're about to have about the NHL product, um, mm-hmm. you know, south of the 37th parallel. Yeah. I think people need to realize, especially in Canada, and I'm saying this as someone who lived in the American South for years, and I was, I learned this the hard way too, because I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I didn't, I went to school in Maryland. I didn't give much credence to I, I wasn't out to spend a ton of time in the deep South as an adult. And I did. And I was disabused of the notion pretty quickly that all those cities and all those people were the same, not all American Southern cities. Like it, it's not a monolith, right? Different places mm-hmm. are different. And I think that's something people need to remember. Like, and you can extend that concept that the South is not a monolith to NHL cities that are in the Sun Belt, right? Like Raleigh is not Dallas and Dallas is not Las Vegas and Las Vegas is not Florida. 
and Florida is not Nashville. Like everything no, there nowhere is, is Florida. Right? Let's be very clear. No, I've, <laughs> which is good. That's that's like that's a, that's a positive for the rest of us. But you can't you can't paint it with that broad of a brush. You can't say that like all right, Arizona seems like a failure. That means that Salt Lake City is going to be too. Or or, or you, there's not a ton of lessons to be drawn from one tradition from one non-traditional market to another each place is unique each place is especially now that we're 20 25 30 years into the experiment each place has a different history and a different culture around the game and i think you got to treat it on a, on a case-by-case basis so that's a great point sean and with that in mind i mean if if we do look down the little the road a little bit to a potential relocation is there a city that kind of jumps out to you as an ideal option for for the nhl I mean, we've talked about Salt Lake City. I, I think in some ways that in terms of a quick fix might be the best on the books because the jazz owner is interested. He wants to buy a hockey team. He said it before. He owns the arena in Salt Lake City. It can make ice. If something happened and they were like, okay, we need to turn this around quickly. We want to have this figured out. It's in the Western Conference, on and on. Right? It's, in the, you know, it's in the Western United States. There's a lot to be said about Salt Lake City as a as a quick fix, even though it's not a huge TV market, it's not it's not a huge there's not a huge corporate base. Like there's issues with it, but it also seems like it would work, and it checks a lot of the boxes. I still think the pipe dream, whether it's as whether it's for Relo or expansion or whatever, it's Houston and it's Atlanta. There are too many people like and, and for better or worse. I think the league looks at the amount of people in those cities, looks at the, at the TV markets, looks at the corporate base and says like, I mean, how, how are we going to figure this out? How do we not end up here in, in some capacity or, or another? The issue for those markets is again, that they don't have the ready-made arena situation. And that's what Salt Lake has over, over the two of them, right? Like if there was a quick fix, Salt Lake City could host a hockey team from by all accounts, like really, really soon. And I think that gives them a leg up at least as it relates to the Coyotes discussion and not the uh, concept adding a 33rd and 34th team. Sean, really appreciate it. Great insight. Uh, hopefully in 12 months, we will not be having you back on to discuss like a Mesa city council. I mean, yeah, we something. can talk of whatever. <laughs> like maybe, maybe I'll be back in Vegas and we can talk yes, about that. We can talk about the strip we don't, a little we don't bit need more. To, we don't need to do this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. <laughs> All right, boys. Take it easy. Uh, that is Sean Gentili of The Athletic uh, covering this Phoenix, Arizona Coyotes saga. Uh, and as you heard there, he's been covering it for a long time, for 15 years, basically, at this point that it's been ongoing. Um, it, I thought it was a great point that he made very well there about not just looking at all cities south of a certain point in the U- in the U.S. and saying, oh, that's all the same. And look, it shouldn't like you just look at the different trajectories and histories of various franchises in these locations. Right. And like even within the same state, Tampa and Florida have had very different experiences, right? They're, they're different markets. They've had different owners. And it, it's important. Like, it gets back to what I was saying about Arizona. With a clean slate, yeah, you could probably make hockey work in Phoenix. You could probably figure out a way to make it uh, something, a, a good NHL franchise in Phoenix. But because of all of the bad decisions that have come before it, I think it's going to be very, very hard to salvage it. But, you know, as you point out, just look at the teams that are in the conference finals right now. It's not as if you can't have a successful NHL operation in non-traditional markets in potentially a place like Houston down the road. Yeah, but you do need one thing. Like one of the the, the successful experiments 
and the and the ones that have either failed or been repeatedly troubled have have one single thing in common and and it's the location like it's location location mm. location you know you're in the entertainment business which isn't too different from the retail business from a you know repeat the word location three times and that's what matters most perspective um you know tampa versus the panthers right uh, and the panthers are having a tremendous success now and i think a lot of credit goes to the stability um that's been brought in relatively speaking uh, under vinnie viola right but you know the the story of those two franchises should be told as simply as you know one had the arena downtown and the owner developed land around it and you know there's big hotels and big amenities now in downtown that are sort of connected in in a major way to Amelie Arena it's an entertainment district uh you know the uh, American Airlines Center in Dallas the the hockey on the strip in Vegas has obviously been a hit it's been a hit on Broadway in Nashville. You know, all of Raleigh is suburban, so that's a little bit of a different one. But, um, <laughs> but you know, nonetheless, like, it's in the heart of that relatively suburban locale. Um, you need the downtown barn. That's just number one. Number, and it's impossible to understand the plight of the Coyotes. Um, and, and I also think irresponsible to blame it on like the level of passion that hockey fans in the desert have because you know we've seen a franchise in Ottawa Canada like mm -hmm. central Canada mm -hmm. struggle for exactly the same reasons location 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 and and uh, another similar factor with Ottawa and Arizona ownership right and as you mentioned ownership yes. in Florida new ownership in Florida helping to counteract the problem of the barns right like you might be able to get by with one of those issues <laughs> you cannot get by with both of those issues and that's something that's plagued Arizona certainly not in a non-traditional market that has plagued Arizona both no, of those for a long time tr truly Viola doesn't get enough credit for you know, and I'm not saying every decision has been right um, by any means, but, you know, the impact that his commitment to that market has had, um, you know, ha has really allowed the Panthers to be a very different story from what the Coyotes have been, which wasn't necessarily true in like 2012 when, yep. when Sean and I started covering this stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the importance of ownership and the, just the stability, which has been so utterly lacking for the Coyotes is a huge part of this story. Uh, up next, we'll, uh, we'll turn our attention back to some things actually happening on the ice, not tonight, but in a couple of days, it'll be the Western Conference Finals, Dallas and Vegas. Uh, Brian Rea, who does a great job covering the stars for Bally Sports, will join us next. We'll, uh, get his thoughts on this series from a star's perspective. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Tran. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at D-L-E-A-M-C 
Kintech.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The conference finals in the Stanley Cup playoffs get going tomorrow night, first with the Eastern Conference matchup, then on Friday, the Western Conference matchup featuring the Vegas Golden Knights and the Dallas Stars. And to talk about the Dallas Stars side of things a little bit with us, uh, covers the team for Bally Sports, uh, our next guest, Brian Rea. Brian, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Doing all right, guys. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing well. You know, we've spent uh, most of today kind of sifting through the Arizona Coyotes situation, but excited to be talking about some actual <laughs> Stanley Cup playoff hockey here uh, with you. And, you know, especially uh, I've been really impressed with the Dallas Stars uh, playoff performance so far. I know neither se- neither series was a, a breeze or anything like it. They were hard-fought series, but I think they've played very well. What what's uh, what's been clicking for Dallas so far? Uh, the keys for you in your eyes in their playoff run? It's probably been a little bit of everything, which I think if you look at their season, there, there's been a little bit of everything involved. You know, round one, that was a physical series against Minnesota. They didn't get sucked into that game. They just let their their power play do a lot of the heavy lifting, and then Jake Ottinger did the the goaltending heavy lifting especially in the later games of that series you get in a round two against seattle and that's a totally different animal they're, they're just a different style team and that's probably in terms of team speed the fastest team that we'll have in in, in these stanley cup playoffs especially seeing them firsthand but but i think for dallas they had to do a little more five on five they had to do a little bit more of of a commitment to we'll call it defense by committee, although every team wants to do that. And Jake Ottinger wasn't perfect throughout that entire series, but so much gets talked about your goaltender. He he was absolutely at his best in that series in games five and in game seven, which were the two most pivotal games in the series, you could argue, especially from the Dallas side. And and they were doing a lot of this also without Jason Robertson, their leading goal scorer. So the depth has showed up at times. A star player like Rope Hintz has showed up at times. Special teams has been key in the first round, five on five, key in the second round. What's going to happen in this third round? I don't have the first dang clue because on paper, it really does look like a toss-up between Dallas and Vegas right now. Yeah, I know I'm really personally excited for this matchup. I think two deep teams that can do a lot of different things, play a lot of different ways. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Um, Of course, one of the changes for Dallas coming into the season was Pete DeBoer coming in behind the bench. And, you know, Pete DeBoer coming to a new team and just immediately making a deep playoff run. It's something he's done a lot. What kind of impacts has he had on the Dallas Stars this year? So, obviously, the, the initial success, as you said, he has a track record for doing this. And, and I think that, especially over the first two rounds of the playoffs, just the daily media sessions, when this question gets brought up, I, two common themes that have come in. I, I think, first of all, a lot of players talk about the way he delivers his message. Like it, It's a very black and white thing. He basically says, look, this is what I want. This is how we get there. And this is what I need from you, the player, in order to get us there as a team. And I think players certainly have an appreciation, especially right off the hop. There seems to be a freshness with that just very direct approach. But his demeanor is actually, it's not 
it's not gruff like maybe say a, a Daryl Sutter or Ken Hitchcock down here in Dallas, obviously with his two stints. There is a little bit of a a, a, a smoothness to it, or 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 almost a warmness to the way he delivers that direct message. This is just my experience in talking with him, you know, face to face as a person. And then I also think, second of all, Jake Ottinger mentioned this after the the game seven win over Seattle, but. Pete DeBoer was a lawyer before he became a hockey coach. And I grew up in a family of lawyers. You deal with most lawyers. It feels like there's a bit of a poker face element with them where they never get too high. They never get too low. They never seem to be phased by whatever development occurs in front of them because that's kind of part of, of the culture and the job. And I think you hear players and hockey coaches talk about that same type of behavior specifically with the Stanley Cup playoffs. He he doesn't have a very up-down or varied demeanor. It's very monotone across the board, regardless of whatever happens. And you look at the, the whole penalties and, and words from Minnesota with diving for calls and things like that in round one. And Pete DeBoer never really had a reaction one way or the other to that situation. And even in, in game six against Seattle, when Lindell and Hopkinpah, the defensive pairing were on the ice for four of the six goals, I think the stars gave up and he was asked specifically about that. And he's like, it's, it's not those two. It, it's us as a unit. He really didn't get, you know, isolated on specific players or situations one way or the other. The fact that Jake Ottinger mentioned that after game seven, that there's a demeanor he has behind the bench that the group feels like it permeates throughout them. You know, you know, how emotional are playoff games, right? It, it, when you control that and your head coach controls that, I do think there's a trickle-down effect. So those are probably the two biggest things I think he's brought, especially in the playoffs right now. Is there any concern about Robertson's lack of production at this point? Or can you tell, can the team tell, can he tell that it's about to come? The team has said, player and coach, that they feel like it's about to come. Um, when I was asked about this earlier in the series, I, I didn't call it a situation to concern or panic about, but I think it's a situation you monitor. Because mm-hmm. big picture, he's a point per game in the playoffs this season. I think he's got 12 <laughs> points in 12 games or, or about 30. So like, like when you're complaining about a player – that a point per game isn't enough. That's a pretty high standard you've set for yourself. And that's kudos to him, especially for what he did this year. But it does feel a little strange that we haven't seen the the goal scoring prowess um, outside of the power play in round one that we normally saw in the regular season. I, I look at games, I'll say five, six, and seven, but especially six and seven when they reunited Robertson with Henson Pavelski he was getting looks and he was getting some grade A opportunities and, and he shanked them wide or he shot them high or, or the goaltender made a great stage. So uh, me personally, I feel like I've seen some really good looks for him. Now, if he's shanking them wide, yeah, he might be gripping the stick a little bit. You know, there, there's clearly higher pressure that he's going to feel both just because he wants to produce and two, you're, he's the number one assignment on the opposing scouting report. So it, mm-hmm. he has somebody on him, sometimes two players on him, just about every single second he's on the ice. I do feel like when he gets the next one, it is going to bust the dam open for him a little bit. And maybe playing Vegas, you know, I wouldn't say the team speed of Vegas is at the same level as the team speed 
of Seattle. And Vegas is a little more, I think, they can kind of pack the house in their own zone. They don't mind giving up an extra shot or two as long as they block it to give themselves a chance the other way. If that means Jason Robertson is going to get two or three extra shot attempts per game, I think that's a good thing for him. I think volume shooting for Jason Robertson is not a bad thing, and he might get a little more of that in this series. I do think it's about to come once he gets the next one. It's just a matter of when that finally does break through. It's an interesting dynamic when you've got Ottinger, who is the only real workhorse-type starter left in the playoffs, (laughs) and on paper should be a big edge for Dallas in any given game that they play, and yet unique among the goaltenders playing in the conference final. You know, for a lot of guys, it's going to be, I mean, what, for Aiden Hill, it's going to be like game 25 on the year. Uh, For Ottinger, it's going to be game 80. Um, Does what could be an edge or what should be an edge on paper um, maybe become a little bit more complicated because of the workload that Ottinger's held down to this point? I think, I don't know if I would say complicated. And it's funny, like, we're, we're in a Final Four with Sergei Bobrovsky, but we don't look at him as a workhorse <laughs> because of just how weird no. this season was in Florida. <laughs> no, but, but that's a $10 million goaltender for a reason, right? I he's know. Past, <laughs> and he's doing it right now. It's, but, but you know what? Like, I'll, I'll go back to the big picture. It, it's kind of in a weird playoffs for goaltenders. One, like, the success of road teams – you know, in just how weird that's been. You know, Sergei Bobrovsky has all of a sudden turned into the $10 million version of himself as opposed to whatever went on in the regular season and just how fluctuated things were in Florida. The Dallas series against Seattle, it kind of felt like a weird series for Jake Ottinger and even Philip Grubauer because of there was only game one that went to overtime and then game seven was a, was a one-goal game. Everything else, it was like wild swings with goals scored in bunches going both ways. And there's kind of an unpredictability, I think, that we get into this conference final. What are these scores in these games going to look like? And how does that affect the goaltenders? I don't think it complicates things. Yeah, he's played a lot, but uh, young legs. And, and you guys might, you might see this with, with Demko a little yeah. bit. And when he was making his ascension in Vancouver, there is something about young legs. Heck, Miro Haskin in plays what feels like an hour every single game, and his legs haven't fallen off yet. So, so I, I do think there is something about young legs. I do think there is something about managing his workload, especially off ice. And, and, you know, it's not like the Stars are doing mandatory practices between each of these games. They really are taking their breaks when they have a chance. So I, I don't think it complicates things. But the one caveat I will go with you on this, Jake Ottinger's never been to this point of the playoffs. And he has a mental makeup at 24 years old that is just different than normal 24-year-old people. I truly think he does not care whatever happened to him yesterday. I think he completely forgets it. I really do. Just interacting with him and talking with him, it does feel like no matter what happened yesterday, it does not exist in his mind or his, his body moving forward. So that's an asset, I think, that he has crafted and navigated very well throughout his entire career, even going up before his time in the NHL and the AHL. So call that an asset. But the unpredictability of these playoffs 
sure, that might be a bit of a wrinkle, but I think he's equipped to manage the unpredictability that we've seen so far. Talking Dallas Stars here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 with Brian Rea of Bally Sports. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up kind of the mental makeup side of things with Jake Ottinger. And you you also brought up the comparison with Thatcher Demko. And here in Vancouver, we've gotten very used to not just the, you know, exceptional physical uh, performance of Thatcher Demko, but when you hear him talk, like extremely locked in, mentally focused, intense, driven, competitive. It sounds like there's something similar with Jake Ottinger. Is that is that almost just a prerequisite to be a goalie his age, carrying the kind of load and burden that he is? Probably because it's such a mental position, and it's it's now probably the most overcoached position in the NHL mm. when you think of how much attention gets put on yeah. a goaltender. And also, I think to do it at that age, yeah, there, there's probably a bit of a, a balance of both. Like, you need to have a certain mental makeup, but also, like, how much specialty training and high-level games internationally, U18 World Juniors, you know, U16s, are, are these players going through in their developmental years where they're almost going through these high-leverage, high-stress situations and dealing with them at a younger age. So there probably is, you know, uh, an effect that comes from that, that certain goaltenders or certain players sort of develop that mental makeup at an earlier age. And, and the whole, the whole game, the whole league is getting younger, you know, so, so 20 year old players are being thrown into these situations more frequently than they probably would have 10, 20 years ago. And it's since, since I'm talking with you guys and, and I mentioned Demko, mm-hmm. the, I, I do think the college route, it has something to be said. And, and my brother went to Boston college. So I like talking the Boston college, Boston university rivalry with Jake Ottinger. Cause he went to BU and about Demko specifically. He, he, he told me earlier this year, he sort of identified Demko's development track as something that he would kind of want to follow, or that's sort of a model that, that he sort of coincides with. He made sure to mention that Demko went to the wrong school in Boston College as opposed to Boston <laughs> University. But, but, but I, I, there is a lot of similarities, I think, between Demko and Ottinger. And, and I think – and I had a conversation with an old NHL goaltender who went to college right about this, and I never thought about this this way. But if you go and play juniors, you're probably playing the highest talent in the world at that, at that teenage age group. But you're sort of quarantined as well in – your little junior bubble. You're with your team. You're with your billet family. You're with your, you know, whatever your schooling situation is. And those are the only three things in your life. When you go the college route, like Demko did or like Ottinger did, you're playing less games, but you're also in a full weight training program because you're on a college campus with full facilities. You have to go to your classes. You have to go to a cafeteria. You have to interact with other human beings. You have to interact with a full social life and a full workload management life outside of just hockey. And I don't know if there's one better than the other, but I just think of the social dynamics and sort of managing all that mentally. Maybe there's a little, not an advantage, but maybe that's a different wrinkle to the college route that allows for a mental development or stimulation that maybe you don't fully get via junior hockey. You know, I I, I would love to hear other goaltenders or players inputs on that but I do think you look at Demko or Ottinger and the mental makeup of their game 
I truly think going the college route does have some kind of influence on that. Yeah, the parallels there are are really interesting. Now, uh, not a goalie, but a skater who had no trouble making the jump from juniors to the NHL this year ends up scoring the <laughs> winning goal in uh, in Game Seven against the Kraken. Wyatt Johnson, fantastic rookie season, you know, for a very very recent draft pick. Uh, just turned 20 uh, a few days ago, I believe. What has allowed him to not just be in the NHL, but contribute to a, a team going on a deep playoff run in the way that he has? So it's funny. I'm, I talk about the mental makeup for the college run, and then you bring up Wyatt Johnston. So I'm, I'm looking like a million bucks right now. No, right? no, no, no. He's a, he's a <laughs> skater, though. He's a skater. It's different. It's different than a goalie. <laughs> it's, it, it is. So, you know what, Ed? He first of all, that that's that's a just a special kind of player, I think, to be able to do what he what he's done in nineteen and twenty. Um, th- there is clearly a talent level and and a mental makeup of him that he just is able to manage things at at a different level, and it's pretty special what he's done. I do think part of what's helped is they had a plan at the start of the year. I'm going to use the word insulate, but I don't, I can't think of a better way to describe it. So there's the Joe Pavelski factor where they had him live with Joe Pavelski and his family. So he essentially has a billet family who, by the way, Joe Pavelski went the college route just to, to keep myself honest here, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but he, he essentially had a billet family for his rookie season in the NHL. And, and Joe Pavelski, like, that's a pretty good hockey parent to Not have. bad. Like, Not if bad. If you think about being 19 years old. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. So you give him a billet family and everything off the ice he doesn't have to worry about. He has to manage it. He has to make his choices. But you've got the ultimate advisor in managing off ice as a 19-year-old in Joe Pavelski. So they, they sort of insulate him a little bit there, protect him a little bit there. Then you put him with Jamie Ben for the entire season. And it's not that we, we live in a different type of NHL. It's not that Jamie Ben has had to go fight a guy every single game to protect Wyatt Johnston, but that's an experienced, hardened, bigger body that is a bit of a presence on the ice. When you put a 19 year old skill player and that big brother is standing right behind your shoulder you can play with a little more freedom and a little more confidence. There's one less thing you have to worry about. You know, you don't need to have your head on a swivel and not be able to play hockey because you're just trying to protect yourself the whole time. So I think putting him in those two situations, it allowed him to just adapt, grow, get used to playing hockey at the NHL level. He already had the skill and the speed and and, and the, the thought process to do it. But God, you just when you're in such a more comfortable situation like that, you know, it, it does. I feel like it does make life a lot easier for you. So we have this habit on this program of ranking the top NHL centermen by tiers. <laughs> and like as a general rule, we've had a tier of four, which, you know, isn't very difficult to figure out. Right. McDavid, Dreisaitl. McDavid Matthews in some order. And we've often talked sure. about the next tier down being Aho, Barkov, you know, Braden Point, Elias Pettersson in some order. But and I'm I'm this is a formal announcement that I, I think Rope Hints now belongs in that group. How good, how important has he been for this stars team? 
you know, well, important to the Stars team. He's their leading point getter, you know, and he's also <laughs> doing this at a time where, where Jason Robertson might have cooled off a little bit. So as long as that line, somebody from that line is finding a way to contribute. It's been Hinton Pavelski primarily after the second round series. You know, it, it's he. So I had, I will admit 100%, not just as I work in Dallas, but I, I am biased with Rope Hints because I was with him in the American League when he came over from mm. Finland. So I've known Rope his entire North American career, you know, and, and I've shared a lot of ugly bus rides with him in, in the American League. So he, he he's, I, I'm glad you mentioned the name Barkov. And I, I, I don't know if I would say Barkov light, but I think that's a fair comparison because of the 200 foot game sort of the jack of all trades who can do everything because he has you know it's top line center top uh, top power play center also spends time on the penalty kill is about is turned into about a 70 to 80 point player 30 plus goalish scorer but he's not this guy that he's a defensive liability for you at five on five Plus, he's 6'3", and he skates like a thoroughbred, which is just weird to see. So he's sort of this package that is undefinable because there's a lot of different skill sets that you don't see in some of the other players you mentioned. But I think Barkov is the closest thing. If you want to say he's in that second tier of centers, I think that's more than fair. If you want to say top 15 I, I think that's a very fair comparison. And the thing that I think is most amazing, regardless of where you rank him, looking at everything he does and looking at some of the players you've compared him to, they have him for eight more years at about $8.5 million. So some of the pay the paychecks that some of those other centers are getting, he, he might be getting paid below market value. He was fine signing that extension. Who knows? But the fact that you get that kind of player – at that type of dollar amount for eight more years, that's pretty good cap management on Jim Nill's part. And and he deserves a lot of credit for putting this specific team together. A tidy bit of business without question. Yeah. All right. Serious prediction. What do you, what are you expecting? I, I, I've had a few people ask me this. I, I personally, I hate the bold prediction question. <laughs> overall but, but i think it's, but but no but but i but i think in this like i true this feels like a pick'em series so i mm-hmm. i think i i think it's i'll say dallas and seven and the defining indicator for me right now is jake ottinger versus aiden hill or whatever goaltender of the night is in net for vegas that's at some point, I know Aiden Hills played well in the small sample size, but at some point that question has to be answered, and his history says it usually doesn't get answered in a positive way. So I, I think, it, to me, it feels like everything is even across the board, but I think Dallas has the edge in goaltending, so I'll give Dallas the seven-game series win. Having said that, they would have to win that seventh game in Vegas. Yeah. So that's how hard of a series it feels like this is to pick. Yeah, I, I can't wait to watch it, and I, I'm hoping, as a, a neutral observer, I'm hoping that it goes seven one way or another because it should be a great series. Yeah, we just want a, we just want a good series exactly. first and foremost. First and foremost, that's what we want. I think it should be. Hey, Brian, really appreciate it. Great insight. Uh, enjoy the start of the series, and uh, hopefully we, ch- we can chat again sometime.
Yeah, I'll give you guys one last caveat. Jamie Benn and Alex Petrangelo. Nobody's talked about that matchup. Those two players used to abuse each other when he was with the St. Louis Blues in the Central Division. <laughs> That's what I'm watching for in this series. All right. Fantastic. I can't wait for it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, guys. That is uh, Brian Rea doing a great job covering great the Dallas stuff. Stars for Bally Sports. Yeah, lots to get into. What, what's your prediction, there. by the way? I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave Brian out on the ledge. Well, I uh, should we do like our official conference finals well, previews tomorrow for that one? Just do yours for that one because I know you've already got it. I don't really is the thing. Come on, I'm going to take Vegas in seven. I think yeah, Vegas is slightly deeper. <laughs> I think Vegas is slightly deeper at forward. Again, we can get into it a little bit more. The X's and O's and stuff. Um, tomorrow. I hate it. I, 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 I hate taking the team I think is slower. <laughs> I just think Vegas's blue line is too high quality an engine at the end of the day. Both these teams are really I can't good. pick against them. I, I think both of these teams are really, really good, though. And I think, you know, yeah, they are. it's interesting that you brought up the maybe Vegas is a little slower. Like, I don't know if I would say I think this is going to be a slow series, but I do think it's going to be a very heavy series. I think there's going to be a lot of, like, play below the dots in the offensive zone, battles on the boards, that kind of thing. So I, I think Vegas can kind of neutralize some of the speed advantage from Dallas just because of the type of series it's going to be. I'm also not kidding, and this is going to sound absurd, but if you have any interest in betting on this series, mm -hmm. check the weather reports. I know that sounds preposterous, but treat it like uh, fantasy football. Check the weather reports because the Dallas building in particular is like insanely hot. The air conditioning is not ideal. And one edge that I do believe that Vegas will have is having the more rested goalie. If there's like a 105 degree day or there's like an afternoon game that's being played at high temperature, like a goalie who's playing his 83rd game of the year um, and, and projects to lose like 12 pounds of liquid over the course of a game, especially if it goes to overtime, like I, I, that's an edge that I'd be worried about um, from, a, from a Dallas perspective. So if you're planning on betting this series game by game, uh, certainly when the games are in Dallas, Check the weather report. So, that's my that's my absurd lock of the day take. <laughs> that's fantastic. That now that's betting content done right, right there. Uh, check the <laughs> weather report for an NHL game, and just a, as you bring it up, I believe Game Three is going to be uh, on Tuesday in Dallas, and they're forecasting a high of twenty nine, which is eighty four degrees Fahrenheit. So it's hot not for here. Bad. I don't know if that's Dallas hot though. You know what I mean? No, it's definitely not Dallas. It's not hot. Dallas hot. So we, we'll, we'll see. Maybe uh, maybe he can. Uh, uh, fight through that one. Uh, anyways, I really enjoy that. We will talk more about the conference finals tomorrow when the uh, Eastern Conference Finals gets going. Uh, but up next, we will turn our attention to our favorite subject, your favorite subject, everyone's favorite subject, the Vancouver Canucks. The Canucks? Salary, the sa no, not just the Canucks. Their salary cap situation, Drancer. Oh, what they yeah. might do about it and some of their options well, to address it in the summer. We can't. We can't. Discuss the other stuff. We, we can't, we have go, to start we can't with this. go a whole show without talking about the cap. <laughs> so we'll get into some of the uh, most talked about options and maybe some of the least talked about options that could still be realistic. We'll talk about that up next here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, final segment of the show. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintec studio. 
650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. What are you chuckling about, Drancer? It's the final segment of Canucks Talk where we finally talk about, about the, Canucks. the Canucks. Hey, listen. <laughs> listen, I didn't name the show. What do you want? It's the Stanley Cup playoffs and, a, and an NHL team wow. might relocate. What do you expect from wow. us? No winning culture in that answer, Jamie. Take some accountability. Um, hold on, hold okay, on, hold we're... on, hold on. Before okay. you before you say anything else, uh, I want to say all of our listeners, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you have a chance right now to win a pair of tickets to go see 50 Cent with special guest Busta Rhymes at Rogers Arena on September 8th. Tickets are on sale now at Ticketmaster.ca, but again, you have a chance right now to win a pair of tickets. It's 50 Cent and Busta Rhymes, Rogers Arena, <laughs> September 8th. Caller number three, 604-280-0650. That's 604-280-0650. Caller number three right now. You win the tickets to 50 Cent. Go ahead, Drance. <laughs> Why do you pronounce the F, the second F in 50 cent? <laughs> well, that's his name. It's not, it's, it didn't spell it out without the second F. It's, it's five zero. It's F-I-D-D-Y, my friend. Yeah, no, <laughs> if, if he had spelled his name like that, I would pronounce it like that, right? Like, like Lil Wayne, I don't say Little Wayne, I say Lil Wayne, because that's how it's spelled out. <laughs> 50 Little cent Wayne. 50 cent <laughs> chose to write it just as 5-0. So that's how I'm going to say Wayne it. is Batman's son. Um <laughs> All right. We've got Canucks takes, right? Yes, we do. We always have Canucks we takes. We always do, but we're choosing to share them right now. <laughs> Some, sometimes you got to keep them in the holster, but right now we're 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 letting it fly. Yeah, I mean, look, I didn't come up with the concept for the show, so <laughs> don't blame me. Um, facts only. <laughs> facts only. The facts only show was calling John Tavares an inferior defensive player to JT Miller the other day. That's a facts-free zone. JT Miller's peak apparently is higher than a two-time Hart finalist right, who right, once right, finished right. a point back from the Art Ross. Let's get let's get back on oh, the rails. Let's how get about, back how on about the rails Halford, here. by the way? Whoa, 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 how whoa, about whoa. Halford and Bruff? Halford the other day took an NHLPR press release and to argue for parity in the NHL. Yes. And it, and it noted that since the Vegas Golden Knights entered the league, the NHL has had 15 different conference finalists. Do you know how many the NBA has? How many? In the same time frame? How many? 14. That's basketball. Yep. That's a world where the Celtics have made it four times. And the Golden State Warriors three times. And LeBron three LeBron times. Jones, LeBron James. LeBron James. Once with the Cavs, twice with the Lakers. Yep. I mean, I mean come on. So one, one extra team beyond the NBA who no one would ever say has an ounce of parody, and we're celebrating parody from that? Come on. Uh, I, first of all, I will say, I do like the idea of just us turning the last segment every show into like an airing of grievances with other shows <laughs> on the station. Here's our yeah, list going, of, every, of everything we have to dispute, facts only. to dispute don't with throw the facts other shows. Only at me. Our our fellow co-hosts on these airwaves have been have been digging deep the last week. I will say just on, um, the, on the parody point before we actually get into the real Canucks talk thing. 
okay, I think parody, it's like, that's a that's a taste thing, right? Some people like parody in their sports league. Some people don't care about it as much. I lean to the side where I don't care about it as much. I actually don't mind dominant teams. I think there's a lot of evidence that if you look at, like, the Premier League and how successful they are globally, that parody is not that important in uh, – in making your sports league successful. The thing that really annoys me about it, but other people can disagree. That's fine. Whatever. The thing that really annoys me about it is the specific defense of the draft and the draft lottery system as a like mechanism and an engine of parody. And that if you ever made any sort of alterations to those, oh my goodness, well, the Leafs would just win every year and it would be ridiculous because they're the richest team. It's like, no, the the draft has nothing to do whatsoever with maintaining parity and everything to do with suppressing the wages of players and reducing their bargaining power. That's it. That's the whole thing. It has nothing to do with parity. So even if you like parity, you don't have to be defending the draft up and down. It's it's completely unrelated. I, I, yes, agreed. I mostly Thank am you. just pushing back on the idea that anything can happen. Um you know, the the idea of the Florida Panthers as an anything can happen team is is gonna drive me loco over the course anything of the next month or so. Anything's possible. I love I love KG, by the way. Um Oh, he's the okay. best. He's awesome. The best. Have you heard his podcast? I have not, actually. This is a digression. Check it out. KG had a bit the other day about how he'd guard Nikola Jokic, and it was so unhinged but in the most delightful KG way, right? Where he's just like talking about all the things he'd try. And then like at the end, he's like, but ultimately this guy has too many things in his bag of tricks and I couldn't actually slow him down. And it was just this like perfect little bit. Like I, I was actually crying laughing. That, listening that to is a great like cross-generation matchup though. Cause KG at his peak, as we get even further afield from the Canucks, KG at his peak, like one of the most impactful defensive players in the, in the, history of the NBA and that was in a time where like he was the rules weren't even as well set up for him to be a great defender like prime KG today are you kidding me that'd be fantastic oh, his, his rim protection would be outrageous well and so and so is when Binyama's going to be so true so so true I tweeted some things in the wake of the Spurs winning the when Binyama lottery and my Twitter mentions were aflame with people outraged by the idea that anything from basketball could ever be applicable to the NHL. Mm -hmm. Like, you cannot compare anything at whatsoever between these two leagues. They are way too fundamentally different, way too fundamentally different to ever possibly be compared, according to a bunch of angry people in my mentions. And, you know, one thing I think is funny about that is... They are, obviously. They couldn't be more different as games, generally speaking. And yet, you know, we're talking about two leagues where there is a cap. I mean, it's a soft cap in the NBA. It's more like a luxury tax threshold. Yep. But teams are genuinely limited, especially in signing restricted free agents, for what they can do. Effectively, what they're able to, um, what they're able to do in terms of spending. Um. There's a draft, there's a draft lottery, there's significant cost control on rookie deals, there's uh, a long restricted free agent runway before a player gets to unrestricted free agency, there's max term contracts, there's 82 game seasons, there's four playoff rounds. I mean, the idea that absolutely nothing is applicable from one to the other is extremely odd to me, particularly given how many teams you now see or ownership groups you now see who 
own both NBA and NHL franchises and are at least open to applying some similar principles across both. I mean, the Josh Harris group, who owns the New Jersey Devils and the, and the Sixers. Philadelphia yep. 76ers, would be the most obvious. But, uh, you know, it, it applies beyond that. Um, you know, you're even seeing some cross-sports ownership groups begin to, like, centralize. Like, the guy who runs the Red Sox has the title, like, chief baseball officer in Fenway. Right. And then there's still a GM and, and on and on beneath that. And there's, you know, cross sports experts and analytics and, and on and on within that apparatus. I mean, the the application of lessons across sports is going to continue. And that's one reason that really curious executives actually make an effort to talk to and learn from each other. That's why Sloan exists. Right. What you're seeing with the conversation around goalie rest is not too dissimilar from what you're seeing with you know, uh, pitchers getting pulled in the seventh inning of a uh, of a no hitter and the whole world losing their minds. Mm -hmm. um, you are seeing strategic applications from one to the other uh, across the sports world. And especially with the structural similarity of capped leagues, like I think it's relevant and, and worth noting when an organization like the San Antonio Spurs arguably the most successful franchise of our lifetime, right? I mean, it's them or the Patriots. It's them. They're, they're, like, they're the two obvious comparisons for a number of different reasons. But, yeah, it's the those two teams. Yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, what? The Patriots won six Super Bowls? Uh, yes. Is that right? Well, yes, I believe that's right. And the, and the Spurs have five, five. titles. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, maybe they're not the best, but they're up there. And... When you look at how they've transitioned post-Duncan, right, and, and what they've done. I mean, this is a team with two committed contracts beyond next season. Uh, they're a team that tanked as embarrassingly as anyone you've ever seen, right? I mean, they started resting 22-year-olds on back-to-backs on -back late in the season. Like, I was picking up guys named Sandro Mamu Skadisvili in, in terms of uh, winning my fantasy league. And, and, like, I've never heard of the guy. I just saw him putting up 10 and 10 for the Spurs sometimes, and, you know, he won me some money. Um, they have 12 non-Wenbanyama draft picks between 2024 and 2028. So it's, like, cap flexibility, draft capital, and with a generational piece at the top of the lottery, Greg Popovich doesn't buy that you build winning culture late in the season. He buys that you go for it. Those are worthwhile lessons to apply to hockey, even if there are obvious differences between the NBA and the NHL. And, and I think it's deeply incurious to just like put up a wall around hockey and assume there are no real world lessons from anything outside of the sport itself that could possibly apply to the delicate, special, completely unique flower that is the sport of hockey. Like that is the lamest sort of thinking the laziest sort of argument that you can get and i just wanted to quickly defend that let's move on to the cap okay we should we should squeeze some canucks talk in here before the end of the show that was uh, canucks talk yeah it was related um more so than the KG talk. Uh, your your latest piece up at the Athletic: uh, Five ways the Canucks can clear cap space, uh, hockey trades, buyouts, sweeteners, uh, etc. And then you list the five in the piece. Now, a lot of these we've talked about, right? Like the idea of 
um, you know, attaching a sweetener to Connor Garland or Brock Besser or Tyler Myers, an, an OEL buyout. <laughs> but KG is good, but he's no Will Borgen. Yeah, is my favorite text we've ever. A really good text from re- Todd has bad takes. A really really it. good text. Um, but a lot of the, there's other options even like within some of those categories that we haven't talked about necessarily as much, right? Like OEL, yeah, he's the name that comes up as a potential bio candidate, but when we go through the list of bad contracts or inefficient contracts or contracts this team wants to move, you know, Brock Besser, Connor Garland, they could be a buyout option as well. It's just the thing that always strikes me when I keep coming back to this problem and this situation the Canucks are in is it's really just trying to find the least painful option, right? But there's going to be pain. Every potential option here, every potential way out of this has a negative attached to it. It's just which do you find least unappetizing, if that makes sense, right? It's not going to be appetizing, but it's the one you can stomach the most to do what you have to do. That's the, the that's what this list of options represents here. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. And I think it's more than that, just like an examination of the cost and benefits of each approach, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're a team... Like, if the Vancouver Canucks were a credible bet to be a team that could make the conference final next year, right? And and I don't know what their price is going to be once the Stanley Cup is awarded and, and the books list it. I mean, I would imagine the Canucks will be priced in and around the Winnipeg Jets, right? And beneath everyone else in the West in terms of you know, their playoff chances and, you know, they could make the playoffs. They're probably a coin flip team to make the playoffs. But if you were a team with a real chance to make some noise, I mean, I would say that a buyout makes a ton of sense because it's the easiest way to free up cap space without leaning on what other clubs around the league, what other rival member clubs want to do and want want to accomplish themselves. It's something you can do easily. And, the fact is, is that the buyout co- or the buyout benefit, the cap benefit of buying out Besser, Garland, or Oliver Ekman Larson is super appealing short term, right? I mean, you save almost Ekman Larson's entire cap hit if you buy him out. And and I noticed that he was removed from injured reserve, by the way, the other day, according to Cap Friendly. Um, Brock Besser, if you buy him out, you save, you know, well, like well over um, four point three million. With Garland, it's 4.1. I mean, it's only 800K cap hold to buy out his deal. I mean, all of those are super appealing if the benefit of next season was all you had in mind. Uh, The problem, and Patrick Alvin specifically spelled it out, was it leaves you with dead money on the cap when you go through future seasons when, you know, Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson are still going to be, like, young, are still going to be in their primes, And that dead money to me is always a really annoying thing, like a thing you need to avoid because you can't even problem solve with it. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, as no matter what you think of Vancouver's options with Brock Besser, just as an example, you know, yeah, it's going to be really, really tough to move Brock Besser at 6.6. But could you move him at 3.3? Oh, yeah, I think you could. And... That's where, like, would you rather have the $4.3 million in extra space but a bunch of annoying cap holds that last for three years beyond this next season or retain and maybe even take money back 
um, for next year. But, you know, beyond that, you're scot-free. It's over. And you've creatively solved the problem with a greater aggregate cap benefit over the long haul. Uh, so, I, you know, I think the buyout option is a bad one for the club. I sort of talk about in- including sweeteners in a deal in order to move off the full freight of, a, of the contract or one of the Canucks' inefficient contracts. And I think that's a tough bet to make too, given where Vancouver's at in their team building cycle and their overall team quality. You know, it's one thing when you're really good to trade Patrick Marlowe for a first, yep. right? Or with or, a first. Yeah. With a first. Or to trade Anton Strallman with a prospect and a bunch of draft picks to the Arizona Coyotes. Or to trade Zach Cassian for a bunch of picks, like the Edmonton Oilers did. Like th- that's one thing. But to do it when you're the Canucks, I think would be reckless. Um, so I don't really like that approach. And sort of as I went through it, I just think whether it's a hockey trade or a retained salary transaction or some mix of the two, or concluding that you've actually got to trade one of your more valuable pieces for a positive return, even if it's a modest one. Like, I don't know if Beauvillier uh, nets you much, but the $4 million in cap space, if you can create it and get, you know, even a mid-round pick back, I mean, it's better than the more painful options that this club is going to be staring down the barrel of this summer. Yeah, and I think for me, that's why... The retention one is interesting. We've had people talk in or text in quite fairly often, right? Like, why don't you guys talk about potentially retaining salary more? And I do think it's an interesting choice because what I would want to be focused on is getting the inefficient money off your books as quickly as possible. And obviously, you would love to do that by trading it this summer. But if that's not possible, if it's going to cost you something, retaining on Brock Besser, there's two more years left, right? So, okay, that's two years of a dead cap hold. But you get the money right now versus a buyout which is going to be four years of dead money in some form on your books right so i think i would rather have the lesser immediate gratification of of extra cap space but have it end quicker because that's the concern for me is that once you get down the buyout road that dead money stays on your books for so long and it forces you into these difficult decisions these other dominoes down the road you know it's kind of remarkable actually with the Braden holtby and jake for buyouts coming off the books at the end of this year the Canucks technically, as of right now, don't have any dead cap on their books. They don't well, have any buyout. Except the overage from Andre Kuzmenko. Sure. But that's that to me, that's a little bit different. I, I think. Like I, I hear I what mean, you're saying. It is and it isn't. Like the problem is is that when once you're in LTI, it's hard to get out. Yeah. In part because you keep accruing these you overages. Always have these rolling bonuses. Yeah. yeah. But for me, it's just like, and I've used this phrase before break the cycle, right? Okay. The last two mm. buyouts, they're about to come off. It would be great not to replace them immediately with more buyout hits on your books for two, three, four years down the road. If there are any other options other than that, like that's the most attractive uh, course of action for me. No, yeah, and I think you're right. And I think you've been on this for a long time with Team Run It Back, which is, you know, a great take that's aged uh, exceptionally well since you made it. Uh, the overwhelming logic of it just remains sort of probably, frankly, Vancouver's best approach unless they can find a relatively or like a modestly priced hockey trade yeah. that helps them reallocate cap space from the wings either onto their blue lines or into the middle, which, man, that is a tall, tall order. And that's the thing. Like, I'm looking around, and it's not that you can't find centers or defensemen that might be cap casualties. It's that if they're a decent player, is the team going to be interested in doing a Connor Garland for, you know, defenseman X swap? 
right? Like it's it's a yeah. really hard fit to find that the other team that's going to be wanting to take on the Canucks in efficient contract and give you a viable center or defenseman back. Well, especially when there's going to be teams like Chicago, you know what I mean, who are just going to be like happy to take that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, who can actually pay him as opposed to like the Coyotes, right? And who are going to have a mess of draft capital that they can send out. That's what's going to make it so challenging is a lot of these teams are just going to have better options. But until the Canucks take care of this, you know, and, and this is why I really wanted to focus on the cap this week, because it feels like this needs to come before the list of like center targets and, yeah. and the funner, more classic offseason speculative stuff. All right, we got to go. We squeezed in our uh, contractually obligated Canucks talk on Canucks talk. <laughs> uh, by the way, congrats to Shane for winning the 50-cent tickets. Uh, Canucks Central with Satin Bick up next right here on Sportsnet 650.